Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I do think that the Europeans need to work on what the European Union is about, how they work, how Brussels works, the whole new group of people that are about to take over the European Union. They have a lot of work to do. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and that was Madeleine Albright, the former US Secretary of State, who spoke with our own Matt Karnichnik, and we'll get to that interview later in the podcast. We'll also hear from a man with a plan to break the EU's stalemate on new members, think tanker Gerard Knaus. And meanwhile, here in Brussels, we're still not sure if we'll have a new European Commission on December the 1st. Two of the three remaining nominees got the green light from the European Parliament today. France's Thierry Breton, who'll take on a super portfolio covering the single market, industry, digital, space and defence. And also Romania's Adina Oana Valian, the future transport commissioner. But we have another Hungarian hold-up. MEPs weren't satisfied with the performance of Budapest's latest nominee, Oliver Varhai, at his confirmation hearing today and they've asked him more questions in writing. And there's still the mess of Britain not nominating a commissioner to sort out. We just learned that the EU has started legal proceedings over that one. So maybe things will be clearer next week. Maybe. OK, so let's bring in our podcast panel now, our uh, capital, where we're not a quartet this week because Annabelle's not with us, she's on holiday. But in Paris, we have Reem Montaz. Hi, Reem. Hello. And in Berlin, Matt Karnichnik. Hi, Matt. Hello. So I think really, as is often the case these days, there's only uh, one person to talk about or one person who's making more headlines than all other European leaders combined. And that's Emmanuel Macron with his uh, big interview uh, on foreign policy last week. Loads to, to discuss on it, really. I mean, maybe we just start with some first impressions. Reem, if you can distill it into a few lines or what, what jumped out most at you. I think perhaps I don't speak for most people who've read that interview, but to me there was very little in there that was new. He has said most of what he said in that interview in bits and pieces over the past three, four months. But I also admit that I, my job is to follow him every day, so I I kind of have him in my mind all the time, um, for better or worse. Um, But clearly his comments on NATO got the most headlines, but to me... The one sentence that really stood out was when he said that France or Europe are aligned with Russia on the terrorist issue. And that is just demonstrably wrong. Why is it wrong? I can give one concrete example. And that's because let's talk about Syria, right? Where is ISIS? ISIS was in Syria for about four years. 
And between 2015 and 2017, the Russian military was involved militarily in Syria, and not once did it bomb any ISIS positions in Syria. And let's remember that during that time, 2015 to 2017, Europe, and in particular France, was going through some of its worst terrorist attacks. So that, to me, really made me stop and think, what is President Macron thinking about when he says something like this? Matt, what jumped out at you so much? Obviously, it was the headline about NATO experiencing brain death that made the most waves. But what kind of jumped out at you? What really uh, stuck out to me was just the tone and the the energy in the interview, which is something that's really missing right now in European politics. And for me, here in Berlin, it really just showed the the contrast between the way Germany's political establishment is talking about Europe now and the way Macron is, and the way, to be honest, that they're just talking about politics in general. Here, everything is very inward-looking. They sort of pay lip service to Europe all the time, say how important it is and that they need to do more on defense and NATO and blah, blah, blah. But it's just there there are no real ideas or or vision for how to do that. And I, I felt that, you know, at least he was painting this very broad picture of where he would like to go. Uh, and again, I, I agree with Rim on, on what he you know, said about Russia is absolutely ridiculous. And you know, his positions on northern Macedonia and Albania and so forth, I think a lot of people would disagree with his decisions there. And, and yet, at least he has a plan. And I think this is one of the reasons that people flock to him the way that they do and, and that people oppose him with you know, such uh, emotion. Just on the Russia point, and one person who was uh, not impressed and not convinced was the uh, European Council President uh, Donald Tusk. And uh, he's giving a speech tonight, uh, will have been uh, headline news by the time people hear this podcast. But he talks particularly about the idea that, that Macron mentions that somehow Viktor Orban could help persuade uh, the Poles to change their position on Russia. In the same interview for The Economist, President Macron says that he shares the same views on the subject as Viktor Orban, and that he hopes that Mr. Orban will help convince Poles to change their position on Russia. Maybe, but not me, Emmanuel. So that is uh, something of a response, which has, uh, in general, really been lacking since this interview came out. We've been, there's just been this vacuum, and nobody else has really come out with a kind of counter-argument or, or any kind of detailed response at the political level among, among senior leaders. Reem, is there any, what's the reaction just domestically uh, in France to this? I wonder if there's been any blowback about the way he expresses himself, you know, with these very uh, trenchant phrases like brain death, questioning Article 5, you know, regardless of what he says, is, is anybody talking about the way he says it? Macron has always had a problem with what people in France call les petites phrases, his sort of um, punchlines. The, the French, he, he's had a few really catastrophic punchlines in, in France that ha- like uh, if you're looking for a job, all you have to do is cross the street and you'll get a job, um, you know, that clearly got him into trouble. Um, I have to say the reactions to his interview in France have been not so important in the end. They're much more focused on things related to Islam and, and, and the veil and, and, and immigration right now and quotas and things like that. 
And in general, you have to understand that in France, uh, NATO is not necessarily something that is hugely popular. European enlargement is definitely not popular and not something that the French support. So in that sense, he wasn't rocking the boat. I think for me, he reminded me a bit of a kind of talented young reporter. Like uh, maybe this is obviously coming from, you know, where I sit most of the day. Like, you know, there's some good ideas there. There's some nice turns of phrase, but they needed a bit of fact checking and he could use a good editor. Uh, and I am available. Well, probably not, actually. But, uh, you know, that's... How's your that's French? How's your French? <laughs> Pas mal. Uh, okay, Matt, uh, go ahead. I think a lot of it was directed at a domestic audience, as is, you know, pretty much everything that he says. And even on the Russia point, you know, it's important to remember uh, that his main political rival in France is very Russia-friendly. And so in that context, if he is showing, you know, that he also is open to some sort of arrangement with Russia, you know, that could be something that sort of helps him take on the Rassemblement National and um, Marine Le Pen, even though it is something, obviously, that is going to be seen very skeptically by the rest of NATO. But, you know, again, with NATO, it's also worth remembering that France has always had a somewhat difficult relationship. And, you know, I think it's it's really important also to point out that perhaps it would have been more European to add when he, you know, put out all of these doubts about NATO and uh, Article 5, which are existential for a lot of member states for Europe, to say, hey, France is willing to extend its nuclear umbrella to everyone in Europe. Or, hey, France is willing to deploy a few hundred French troops to, say, Poland. It was just bizarre that he seemed to just want to have a philosophical conversation as opposed to actually practically making proposals for solutions. Well, this is really one of the, the criticisms of him here that you know, we often hear is that you know, he always has these big ideas, but when it, it comes to pay up, nobody can find him, especially on issues literally that are about paying up, such as the EU budget. And, you know, he comes up with these ideas for spending 2% of GDP and so forth. But apparently in these budget negotiations, it's always the French negotiator that has to call back to Paris every time, you know, they're talking about spending, you know, as little as $10 million uh, euros on something. So uh, he, he does seem to be speaking out of both sides of his mouth on a lot of these issues. And I think just through this sort of Brussels perspective here is it, one of the interesting things is that people here who might be enamoured of someone who considers himself a very pro-EU president are, are not at all convinced. And I think it's partly, once again, you see from that interview, it's not, well, these are the issues we face and we need to discuss with our partners and, and come up with a plan. It's like, no, no, I've already figured this out and there's a French plan and uh, now let's uh, everybody else get on board. But once again, I, I think, you know, we could say in Macron's defence, you know, he, this is a guy who's clearly up for a debate, right? And But he doesn't seem to have many debating partners. Uh, Matt, do you think that, you know, Germany will ever give a kind of considered response to all of this? Well, I think this has been, unfortunately, the, uh, the recent history on this front is that Merkel just sort of quietly kills these ideas through neglect. And the debating culture here is much different. I, I, my theory is that because in the French presidential system, Macron has this immense power uh, that he can say and do pretty much whatever he wants, and uh, because Germany ultimately has the purse strings on, uh, is holding the purse strings on a lot of these questions, you know, Merkel has tended to just sort of quietly nod and then push things aside. You know, there's a question here also about the method. And is there a method to this kind of megaphone 
approach that he took? Is he trying to provoke a crisis in order to shock people and his European partners into action and into stepping up on European defense? I'm not sure how much of a plan there is there. I'm not sure... Uh, if he has a plan that he's going to come up with uh, by the time the NATO summit rolls around in a month in London. And I'm not even sure if he's prepared. Let's say Donald Trump shows up on the 3rd of December at the summit and decides to say, you know what, Emmanuel has understood what I've been saying for the past two, three years. I'm leaving NATO. Figure it out. I mean, I'm taking it to the extreme, but there are Uh, scenarios in between that he could be faced with. And so is he actually in a position to take responsibility for the consequences of this? I'm not sure he is. Yeah, one of the questions I ask myself sometimes is is whether he, you know, fully understands the difference between, you know, shaking things up and pissing people off, which we may have to, to bleep. And, uh, you know, one of them can be quite productive to getting things done. Uh, the second one, you know, not so much. So I guess we'll find out. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. But uh, Matt will stay with us actually for a few uh, more minutes just to set up uh, the next part of the podcast, which is an interview with Madeleine Albright. Matt, tell us a little bit about um, the circumstances of this one. Well, she was in Berlin last week on the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, talking about uh, her experience during the Cold War. She came into office as the United States' ambassador to the United Nations during the Clinton administration, so some years after the fall of the wall. She was also the Secretary of State, uh, was also very involved in the uh, Balkans politics of the time and is uh, really still revered in in parts of the uh, former Yugoslavia. But I talked to her mainly about her reflections, she's now 82 years old, on what went wrong really over the past 30 years in terms of trying to bring in the uh, former Eastern Bloc and what she thinks Europe should be doing now to uh, fix some of the problems that uh, have arisen. Okay, let's have a listen to that interview right now. A lot of people would say that Europe today is not in a good position. There are a lot of problems in Europe at the moment, from populism to you know the, the, the Russian interference that we've seen to the tensions within the European Union. What, what do you think went wrong over the past 30 years? I think that, first of all, that mostly many of us or people that were in office at a particular time had been so um, riveted by what had happened during the Cold War. It was really the framework within which we had to operate. And I think that there was this sense that with the fall of the wall, everything changed. And so I think that Euphoria is a wonderful sense, a feeling that happens, but I think we became overwhelmed by the euphoria ourselves and did not see enough of what was the residue of uh, having had communism for 50 years, and especially after World War II, and then trying to figure out uh, what could be done to capture the moment of the wall falling and communism ending in a number of countries. Uh, and I think we over, uh, I hate to say this, but we were overly euphoric. Um, and now we have to figure out how we deal with some of the issues that are left. I mean, spe- speaking of these issues, uh, one of the issues would be Hungary in many people's minds. Another one would be the situation in Poland. 
Do you think that those situations could have been more effectively dealt with by the United States over the past decades? I think that, by the way, it isn't only just the United States. I think that one of the things that I think could have been going on was would have been a more helpful relationship between Western Europe and Central and Eastern Europe. I also do think that there were certain remnants of things that uh, were not paid enough attention to. I did a survey of all of Europe in 91, and we asked a variety of questions, and one that I will never forget was in Hungary. We asked the question, do you think a piece of your country is in the neighboring country? And the response by the Hungarians was 80% of the people thought that a piece of their country was in the neighboring country. So if you get a leader um, or any leaders that use the card of nationalism to motivate changes in their societies, there is something there for them to play off of. And we did not deal enough, I think, with the issues of countries that wanted to have their own identity within a European Union, so that there were structural issues, and then within the countries themselves. So, you know, it's easy enough to say we should have, could have done various things, but mistakes were made, and part of it was the kind of overwhelming sense that everything was done. You know, Fukuyama and the end of history and things like that that simply aren't true. Well, some people in Europe, not everybody, but some people in Europe now feel that the United States is pulling away from Europe, that the transatlantic relationship is under sort of immense strain. Do you think that that's true? Do you think it's going to change? Or do you think this is sort of the inevitable shift of history that the United States will look towards the Pacific as, as Obama kind of announced? It didn't really happen during his presidency, but that was certainly his intention, the, the famous pivot to the Pacific, do you think that it matters for Europe that the U.S. would uh, sort of shift its attention somewhere else? Well, well, let me say the following thing. The hope was that with the end of the Cold War and then various times where the United States has expanded NATO, done a number of different aspects to show our interest in Europe and our part in it, what people were thinking and talking about was that there needed to be a partnership with Europe to deal with some of the issues in the rest of the world. And I remember, I was not in the Obama administration, but when the rebalancing to Asia came, I'd get a lot of calls from friends in particularly Central and Eastern Europe saying, you don't care about us anymore. And I said, that's not true. You used to be the problem. Now you're a part of the solution. We want to see a partnership. Then what happened was that I think that um, there was not enough attention paid to how the partnership could evolve. I have said, somewhat uh, not so cleverly, but the U.S. is not monogamous. We are an Atlantic and a Pacific power. And I think that that is a, something that needs to be remembered. I am very disappointed in the way that uh, American policy is being carried out at this time. I, given my background, believe in the importance of American engagement. Uh, President Clinton is the one who first said we were the indispensable nation. I just said it so often. It became identified with me. But there is nothing about the word indispensable that says alone. It means that we need to be engaged in partnership with others. And that part is not operating at the moment because we are not seeing other countries as partners. We see, them, we see ourselves as victims. So I am worried 
about what is going on now. And I therefore believe that those of us that can need to keep talking about the fact that America needs to be a partner with other countries and that we have responsibilities in Europe and in um, Asia and in Latin America and Africa. But we can't do it alone and we shouldn't do it alone. Well, when you talk about partnership, I don't think anybody would uh, dispute that notion. But the, the administration in Washington now would say, well, it's the Europeans who haven't been good partners, right? That in, in recent years, it's been the Europeans who haven't really stepped up. And it sounds like you would agree to that to a, to a degree. Do you think that President Trump is actually right, though, in particular about the Germans and others who aren't paying you know, the 2% uh, NATO contribution, um, that, that aren't really kind of stepping into the breach uh, in the same uh, way the United States is asking? Well, I, we used to talk about the fact that 2%. I think it's important to understand what the 2% refers to. It is to what the countries are spending on their own defense, and many of them are stepping up and doing it. It isn't kind of paying into some pot. Um, I do think that the U.S. has benefited from partnership with UN in Afghanistan. There have been a lot of um, uh, NATO activities and partnerships in Afghanistan, and I think that they are not appreciated enough at this point. And haranguing our partners is not the way to operate. Uh, partners treat each other with respect. And a region that's very uh, close to your heart, obviously, given your, your history in, in the Balkans, uh, is the former Yugoslavia. Uh, the EU recently decided not to open accession negotiations with northern Macedonia and Albania. Do you think that was a mistake, and what do you think the EU should uh, do next on that front? I, I wish that they had opened up some of the more of the chapters and really worked in that direction. We used to think that being members of NATO also, because it's a, an alliance of democracies, was a kind of a catalytic way of getting a way of finding ways to help countries evolve in order to be part of the world's greatest alliance. The same is true for the EU. Um, I do, however, think that there needs to be an awful lot of help and work done on the EU. Um, I find that whenever I had anything to say about the EU in terms of I wish they had done more about Turkey, I was told to mind my own business. But I do think that the Europeans need to work on what the European Union is about, uh, how um, they work, how Brussels works, how the whole new, um, the new uh, group of people that are about to take over the European Union. They have a lot of work to do. But do you see, given the, the interference that we're seeing uh, by the Russians in particular in the region and even the Chinese, you know, which is investing heavily in the Belt and Road in some of the countries in the Balkans, do you see a risk that the West, the EU in particular, could, could lose the region to these other spheres? I think they, they need to pay attention to the region. And this is why I am so troubled generally about something that is going on which is hypernationalism, worrying about only your small part of the world and thinking that whichever country can function well without the kinds of partnerships that need to develop. And so I am very worried about the nationalism that's taking place in a variety of places in Europe and also in the United States. I'm very proud to be an American, but I think that we benefit when we are engaged with other countries and don't see them 
as uh, just transactional relationships. That was Matt speaking with Madeleine Albright. And now let's turn to our next interview. A couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to talk EU enlargement with Gerald Knaus. He's the boss of the European Stability Initiative think tank. Now, as you probably remember, discussions on whether to open EU membership talks with North Macedonia and Albania hit a French wall at the recent European Council in the form of Emmanuel Macron. And Knaus has a proposal on how to overcome the deadlock. It's a pretty controversial proposal. He seems to spend a lot of every day defending it from criticism on social media. And just before we get started, a quick jargon check for those outside the EU bubble. He uses the French term acquis several times, the almost untranslatable word for the common rights and obligations that all EU members are bound to. So now let's hear Gerald Knaus explain his plan. So what we propose is have a process that is merit-based. Do away with the vetoes by member states that are not related to reforms. But the only way you can get that is if you focus on the substance and not on the symbolism. And the substance, that means when you talk to countries that are skeptical, like the French or the Dutch, give these countries a concrete goal that you, French parliamentarians, Dutch parliamentarians, German parliamentarians can support, which is to join the single market in the way Norway has done, to have to work towards meeting the conditions for the four freedoms, to meet and adopt 90% of their key. And once countries have done that and offer this to all, all six countries, do away with the vetoes, this absurd exercise of opening chapters where nobody knows what really happens because nothing happens when you do this. Do away with this. Their key is set. You know what Norway had to adopt. Ask the Western Balkans to do that. Give them support. Help them with assistance. Provide them with honest, critical feedback. And when they meet those conditions, they should be able to join the, well, in the case of Norway, it's the European economic area. You create something like this for the Balkans. And then when they are in and this works, you'll have a debate whether, in fact, the promise which cannot be withdrawn, which was given to them that they could also be members, would not, in fact, be acceptable even to the skeptical French or Dutch, because by that time, these countries could have proven that they've really been transformed. So you're talking about a two-stage process. The first stage would be to have them join the European economic area or something similar, and then once they'd done that, they could then, uh, in your view, apply for EU membership being already very close to meeting the standards that would be required. Is well, most of them have applied for your membership already. So that's there. And they all have the right to join the EU. That's in the treaties. Every European country can apply. But that doesn't deal with the fact that they also need to convince every member state. So there is no guarantee now that member states will all be convinced and there cannot be any guarantee. But in the meantime, while we know some member states have misgivings, Use that time constructively. Offer all six the chance to prove to the EU, and that's in our interest as, as, as EU citizens, to prove to the EU that they can meet those conditions and create a merit, meritocratic race. I mean, it's like a marathon where you have 42 kilometers to run. Meeting the conditions for the, uh, like Norway integration, European economic area type integration, takes you to kilometer 35. But when you are there, you are transformed. Offer this to North Macedonia, Albania, Bosnia, Kosovo, Serbia, Montenegro. Now, see how they do. 
reform the process, do away with silly vetoes, and and in the process, restore credibility. Isn't this a lot? A lot of this is is about status as well, and the importance of status. So, in other words, if you're to run a thirty-five kilometer race, wouldn't you rather know that you're running a marathon from the beginning and know there's a big prize at the end of it? You're going to be top of a podium with a big EU flag, and you're going to be EU member. Don't you need that big incentive to to undertake that kind of long distance race? That's what a lot of people say in the region, but I think they profoundly mischaracterize why the EU is attractive. I mean, it's not a price. It's a transformation of your society. But isn't this a kind of second-class option? That seems to be some of the criticism you're getting, right? People feel like... Yes, yes. And I understand completely where this is coming from. But the reality is that what we proposed was offered to Sweden, to Austria, to Finland, to Norway. And the experience these countries had negotiating to join the European Economic Area was that this was in itself a good thing and it made it then very easy to join the EU. So what I think is important about the presentation of this is that it is not an end of the accession dream. It is a way not to waste time while some member states, because of their internal doubts, block everything. And so we have at the moment a race to stay with this metaphor of six Balkan countries where Kosovo is not allowed to even come close to the track where Bosnia is told it's not allowed to put on its running shoes where the two candidates Albania and North Macedonia have put on their running shoes and the speaker in the stadium has announced many times they will be starting North Macedonia nine times and every time they get to the starting ground the 27 referees say no go back don't run and where the two countries that are running Montenegro and Serbia Nobody can tell you at the moment how close they are to the end goal. This is the race we have at the moment. It's an absurd process that needs to be reformed in everyone's interest. I can think, obviously, one obvious difference between countries like Norway, Finland, Sweden, Austria, wealthy, uh, developed democracies. I expect that some people in Albania, North Macedonia and other places are going to say they didn't need some of the things that we would need from EU membership, like cohesion funds, very large amounts of possibly quite a lot from the common agriculture policy. In other words, the incentive of full EU membership for them, even in this kind of, in the initial stage, is greater than, say, it was for for wealthy countries who didn't need the kind of transfers that the EU only gives to fellow members. That's a very, very good point. And the way to address it, I think, is for countries like France to prove that what they say they mean, which is they believe that the Balkans is vital. They are just worried about having more members at the moment. President Macron, when he explained the French veto, said that the EU needs to be more present in the Balkans and that has to mean more money. And to make these investments becomes all the more easy to argue for when these countries also make the institutional and legal changes. Imagine we have a race, six countries. They're supposed to work on environmental, the environmental acquis which they need to do anyways if they want to join. They reform their legislation, they reform their institutions, which involves changing the way companies deal with waste and air and pollution and all the things that affect the environment. And then they need the money to make the investments because it costs a lot to adopt the acquis. Those countries where the Commission finds in a fair assessment 
among the six that make this progress, that advance, that have done serious reforms, they are the ones who should then receive more of the investment. It's a merit-based competition, more for more, that is based on an objective foundation. And if all six countries have done the basic reforms in their institutions, well then the EU should give them the kind of money that it has given to Romania and Bulgaria. So you're here in Brussels today. Uh, I think you've just been in the, at the Commission. Um, what kind of feedback are you getting from the EU institutions, from member governments to, to this proposal? Well, there is a broad consensus that we can't just stay with the French veto. I mean, France itself uh, says we need a, a different policy, but hasn't outlined yet what it should be. There is a broad consensus that most member states want to preserve the enlargement perspective because they rightly think this is mobilizing. There is also broad consensus in the Commission on those who've worked on enlargement that the current process with all these non-merit-based vetoes is not very motivating and useful. So on these things there is agreement. And then the question becomes what kind of instrument can you find that France and the Netherlands and other skeptical countries about accession and those who believe in more engagement can agree upon. Now, whether it will be something like a Norway-type solution, sectorial integration, the four freedoms, which is, in fact, the most ambitious vision that is not full membership right now, uh, we will have to see. I, I think this would be good for France, it would be good for Sweden, it would be good for Slovenia or Greece. I mean, countries that are close, countries that are far but care about the Balkans, and countries that care more about EU credibility. They could all agree on this. And if it would work, the EU would show in a world where we want to show that we can export our, our values and our regulations and our soft power and promote reforms, it would be a signal also to East European countries, uh, it would be a signal to the world that the EU uh, doesn't lack the, the, the confidence that when countries say we want to be like you, we can say, well, we can create a system where this becomes possible. That was Gerald Knaus of the European Stability Initiative. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can always email us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. I'll be away next week, but you'll hear an interview I've recorded with European Parliament Vice President Katerina Barley. And you'll be in safe hands with Reem and Matt and Annabelle. For this week, thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening. Listening.